This week on Pop Culture Confidential, he's the screenwriting guru that's been through all the highs and lows the industry has to offer. Podcast superstar and exec producer and writer of the upcoming HBO series Chernobyl, Craig Mazin. There is an effort to convince screenwriters that they are less important than they are, less essential than they are, that they have less authority than they actually do. Because if they told us how much we actually mattered, you know, <laughs> then we would be in charge of stuff. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining us again. I'm Christina Yerling Biru, and this is Pop Culture Confidential, a Spotify original. So my guest this week is seemingly an entertainment savant. He's probably a workaholic, but he's always passionate. Craig Mazin began his vast entertainment career as a marketing exec with Walt Disney Pictures. His writing credits include Huntsman, Winter's War, Identity Thief, Superhero Movie, and several of the Hangover and Scary Movie sequels. Mazin hosts live shows, he consults on other Hollywood scripts, and I love his passionate speeches on everything from bad critics to writer's block on script notes. Now that's the screenwriting podcast that he's hosted with fellow screenwriter John August since 2011. It's one of the most popular podcasts around, and it's really become an industry staple. Now, Mason joins me to talk about those highs and lows of screenwriting, the horrors of working with the Weinsteins, why comedies are the most difficult genre, if there's a trick to writing sequels, bad film criticism, and of course, his new TV series. Craig Mazin is barreling headfirst into what may be his biggest project yet, exec producer and writer of the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, starring Jared Harris, Stellan Skarsgård, Emily Watson, and directed by Swedish director Johan Renk. Mr. Mason, thank you so much for talking to me. It is my great pleasure, and now I know how to pronounce Stellan's last name. Oh, good, Skarsgård. <laughs> I just thought it was, yeah, I thought it was Skarsgård, you know, because I'm very American, and apparently it's Skarsgård. Okay, Skarsgård, Gord, it has an O. Gord, Gord. <laughs> yes. that's, that's, the, that's the little O above the E. Now exactly. See, I'm learning. Exactly. And um, are you passionate? If not, I have to change my whole intro. I'm extraordinarily passionate, uh, to probably to my own um, discredit, in the sense that sometimes my... Uh, my passion gets the better of me and I care too much about things or I get a little bit obsessed over things. But um, in this case, the case of Chernobyl, I think it's uh, there was really no other reason to do it other than passion. Uh, this isn't a big you know, money gig. It's, that's not what it's about. It's just about this topic that I became independently obsessed with and the many, many stories of all these incredible people, both amazing people and terrible people. So, um, yeah, I think, I think definitely passionate is, is that's all, I'll, I'll take it. That's fair. Okay, good. Um, tell me a little bit more about Chernobyl and, and why this was the story that you wanted to write. Well, it wasn't that I wanted to write it per se. I, I wasn't thinking about it. I, I just happened to pick up a, a newspaper article one day. Uh, it was probably around the, I don't know, 20, eighth or 29th anniversary of the disaster. And they were talking about how things were going in the exclusion zone. That's the area that you need permission to go into. It's that large area around the power plant. And it suddenly occurred to me that everybody knows that 
Chernobyl blew up. Mm-hmm. If you say to people, what happened to Chernobyl? Uh, a nuclear reactor blew up. Correct. But how? And it, it, it just seemed odd to me that I never thought about how. I know why Titanic sank. It hit an iceberg. Why did Chernobyl blow up? So I just started reading. And that began this process where I uncovered not just this remarkable scientific mystery and solution, but also this incredible series, not one or two, but dozens of remarkable personal stories connected to Chernobyl that blew my mind. And all of it just seemed so compelling that as a writer, I was almost embarrassed at how how much of the work had already been done by fact. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I just started doing a ton of research and then I went to, um, to Carolyn Strauss who, um, I met through, uh, friends of mine, uh, uh, Dan Weiss and Dave Benioff who, uh, created and run Game of Thrones and Carolyn is an executive producer with them. And so I met her through them and I went to her cause she seemed HBO seemed like the right place and she seemed like the right person. And she said, okay, that sounds good. And then we went to HBO and they said, okay, that sounds good. And then. And then I wrote it and then they said, okay, that sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) And and everywhere along the way, you know, and and, and I had these, you know, this cast in mind as I was writing, like, oh, you know, this character should be Jared Harrison. This character should be Stellan Skarsgård and this character should be Emily Watson. Oh, really? And then they all said, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, it's been kind of wonderful all along the way. But that's, that's how it started with simple curiosity. And it seems so politically relevant somehow, considering what's going on in the world. Was this something you have sort of brought into your writing? Very much so. I mean, when I started thinking about Chernobyl, uh, I don't think the world was quite as awash in toxic lies as it is now. Um, And certainly uh, Russia as a nation and Putin and and culture, I guess, sort of Eastern European culture wasn't uh, in the forefront of news the way it is now. So in that sense, I suppose there's a certain amount of luck. But for me, the story was always about the cost of lies. That is what Chernobyl represents to me. Um, Chernobyl happened because people decided that the stories they wanted to tell each other were more important than the truth. And you can draw a direct line between the human inclination to lie and a nuclear reactor exploding. And it's kind of remarkable in that sense. That was always, to me, what the story was about. That being the sort of worst of what humans do. And then the remarkable courage and sacrifice of people that stood for truth on the other side of it. And the... Oddly enough, the world, uh, I think, seems to have kind of been forced to confront this problem all the more openly now that we have uh, multiple governments that are essentially occupied by uh, liars. Um, I know that it's uh, you're very much sort of in production now, so it may be secret, but can you talk anything about the characters in the series? Oh, yeah, sure. Certainly. Um, because it's historical, so... Um, you know, there's some things, uh, you know, we do want to kind of conceal just because we want the story to have full impact. But other things, you know, are like it, it was at Chernobyl. That's a fact. Um, the the main characters, the three main characters are uh, two are historical and one is sort of a composite character. 
So Jared Harris plays uh, Valery Legasov, who was a Soviet physicist and academician and party member. He was he was a proper Soviet Communist Party member, and he was the man put in charge of figuring out what to do. Uh, and this meaning from the day after the explosion throughout, um, how do we put this fire out? How do we decontaminate this massive area of land? How do we clear away this um, incredibly radioactive debris from the site? How do we cover it? What do we do? He was also the man that the Soviets sent to Vienna, where he spoke in front of the IAEA and kind of told the story about what happened at Chernobyl to ease Western fears. But the story that he told was the story that the Soviets commanded he tell. And so there's this fascinating personal story of this man who goes through his own journey. And Lagasov, this was another one of the things when I read it, I thought, oh God, again, this is, if if I wrote it, it wouldn't be believable, but it's true. Uh, Valery Lagasov committed suicide two years to the day uh, of the Chernobyl accident. So two years after the accident, he committed suicide. And I find that fascinating as well. Why <laughs> did he commit suicide? And and what was the remarkable impact of that? That will leave for the show. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård plays uh, Boris Sherbina, who was a, um, a high-ranking Soviet official. And he was kind of the bureaucrat that was put in charge. And his relationship with Legasov starts off quite rockily, but over the course of the events, they be- begin to rely upon each other heavily. Um, and, and his is also a fascinating story of someone who rises to a challenge. This was not a particularly, he wasn't an important Soviet, he was never going to be the premier, he was never going to be the head of the Soviet Union. He was one of those sort of cast of characters in the Kremlin, you know, that was always there. Right. And when they, when they assigned him this task, in part they assigned it to him because it, they initially didn't think it was serious. The initial reports that arrived at the Kremlin were that uh, Chernobyl was, the reactor was fine. Uh, it was a roof fire. It was something else entirely. And so they said, well, okay, let's have Sherbina handle this. And then, so that, that's a remarkable story. And then third, um, we have uh, the wonder, wonderful Emily Watson playing another physicist named Komuk, who sort of stands for all of the scientists who helped out and who warned and championed truth at the price often of their own freedom and safety. Uh, there were scientists who were put on trial because they dared to speak the truth about Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. So those three are kind of our leading characters, but we also present dozens of characters from history, including all the people in the control room that night and the people who ran the plant and also firefighters and a firefighter's wife. And it's all, we have a, an enormous cast, over a hundred speaking parts. It's quite it's quite epic. The The show is going to be quite epic and very personal, very human story. This is not um, going to be a, you know, sort of a boring science homework show. This is, this is about, this is about people. Good, good. I would have figured. But um, we started by talking about uh, passion. Now, sort of the Russian, Eastern European, now that's uh, people of a certain stock, very passionate, who've been through a lot. What have you learned about the sensibilities there? Well, so much. And it's a huge part of the program. And um, I don't want to give too much away, but we, we really address that head on. 
um, the if you look at the history of Russian people and Ukrainian people, Belarusian people, really everyone in Eastern Europe, and you look at the 20th century, it is it is it is unimaginably sorrowful. Uh, one tragedy after another, sometimes tragedies overlapping. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes in the West, we forget just how much that part of the world suffered in the 20th century. We we concentrate on Western Europe. We concentrate on stories like D-Day and Dunkirk. And in the U.S., we have Pearl Harbor. And we certainly, we talk about the Holocaust. And these are incredibly important stories. Meanwhile, in what is now, you know, we'll just call Eastern Europe in general, but we'll say that we're with a former Soviet empire, you're looking at revolution, war, forced famine, war, oppression, purges, Chernobyl. And over the course of the 20th century, tens of millions of people died. Tens of millions died because of war and famine and oppression and disaster. And there is a, uh, a heavy heart there that has been well-earned. And it is truly amazing to me the the resilience of those people they they the eastern europeans are the heroes of this story this is their tragedy and this is and this is evidence of their heroism they saved europe they really did um if you could say the soviets you know put europe at risk and the soviet people saved europe Hearing you talk about this, it seems like quite a departure for you um, with this miniseries. You have a a vast comedy career. I can't really see the the hangover guys <laughs> <laughs> in this. Uh, you're talking about these passionate people from the Soviet right. Um Do you feel that way? I mean, is, was it a, a departure? I guess the way I think about it in the strangest sense is everything else has been a departure. I, this is who I really am. Um, wow. This. These are the things I care about. I've always been fascinated by history and serious things. I'm not necessarily fascinated by drama per se. I love comedy. I love all forms of entertainment, whether it's drama or comedy. I'm not quite sure how I ended up in comedy, but I did. And and I like doing it. And certainly, I always talk about, especially with movies, if you write funny movies in Hollywood – that work with audiences, you're sort of like a, you become a bit of a specialist and that's what they need you to do because there are not actually that many people that do it reliably. And, you know, I, it's a hard business to get into. It's a hard business to stay in. And, you know, I was happy to kind of do, learn my craft and try and get better as I went, but you could start to see things slipping in, you know, and, (laughs) um, and I finally, with Chernobyl, it's so funny. I just, it never even occurred to me that people would go, wait, the hangover guy wants to? Because <laughs> um, to me, this isn't the most me thing ever. But, you know, I give HBO a lot of credit. Uh, probably when they heard that I was coming in, they thought, well, this will be odd. But, you know, they heard what I had to say and the way I was saying it, and they had no problem whatsoever. Just, yeah, let's do this. But I just have to say that, 
I find, and I think that the Americans in general, I mean, people who make good movies in a way, I mean, really respect comedy. Comedy is one of the most difficult genres to write, I would imagine. Like the scary movie type of things with four or five jokes a minute. I can't even imagine um, um, that. So there must be some sort of methodology to it. Well, you're right in saying that it is hard. In fact, um, writing the scary movies was the hardest writing I've ever done in my life. Um, way harder than writing something like Chernobyl. Far, far more difficult because it is highly technical and highly demanding. And it is um, it is a form of art that is designed to make, to elicit an involuntary physical response from right. an audience through laughter constantly. It is, it, is a, it is a difficult taskmaster. You never have a moment where you can just stop you never have a moment to relax or breathe. You don't even have the benefit of real characters. Like we, I would always talk with the actors in the scary movies and say, like, these aren't real people. They're like, they're almost like uh, lobotomized versions of real people because we're kind of <laughs> making fun of the people in these things. And so it's it's a very very difficult thing to do. I think generally across the world, when it comes to things like awards and recognition and respect, drama just tends to get all of it. And I think if people had an understanding of how difficult comedy was, the only movies that would win awards would be comedies. Right. Because they're just brutally difficult to do. And, you know, a a drama that sort of misses the mark somewhat, people will say, oh, yeah, you know, I I watched it. I, I liked it. You know, it didn't, I didn't, Love it. You know, I didn't cry at the end or anything, but it was all right. A comedy, it's either I laughed or I didn't. And if I didn't laugh, then it stinks then and it's it stinks, stupid. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just a it's a very demanding thing. And, and honestly, after essentially uh, 20 years of writing comedy, it's been lovely to finally exercise this other part of my brain. I don't have any regrets. And, and I like I said, I, I think comedy is just deserving of all of the respect but ah, this was a nice breath of fresh air for me to, you needed to, some to eastern european darkness to <sighs> get did. over that airplane comedy i <laughs> did exactly <laughs> but you did um st- work with some of the real geniuses i, I referenced airplane it's like, i mean is there something um that you learned from them that you everything. everything. I learned everything from them. I mean, working. So I worked with David Zucker and Jim Abrams and Pat Proft and Leslie Nielsen. And it was an incredible school for me. Uh, I learned so much about what made things funny and what made things less funny. And I also learned a lot about filmmaking in general from those guys. Um, David in particular has a very collaborative way of directing. So even while he was directing, I was kind of, he would hand me a lot of responsibilities that I think a lot of directors wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So I I started to learn and participate a lot in the actual creation of the work and, and editing, an enormous amount of editing. And I'm obsessed with editing and, and truly think that that's where all things actually happen. Well, they happen when you're writing, they happen when you're casting, they happen when you're editing. The The hardest part for me is the part in the middle um, where the shooting happens because okay. it's so 
grueling. It's such an inefficient process, you know, and and I'm so happy that I have, you know, Johan Rank uh, directing. So, you know, he he likes the grueling process. I'm <laughs> just astonished by that. But I learned sweet. an enormous Well, you know, he is, I think I must have some kind of secret Swedish soul because I just really, I love that guy. And the two of us just see eye to eye and heart to heart on just about everything. It's it's lovely. You have become a screenwriting guru, really, um, after, what, 350 episodes of, of script notes. Um, compared to someone like Robert McKee or Sid Fields, you write your own movies. Do you feel pressure to write a perfect script after becoming the screenwriting guru and so many <laughs> people calling you? I mean, is it, is it pressure added now? Um, no, uh, there is no such thing. Um, and even if I did write the perfect script, the problem is it has to be produced. And so, and they fuck it up. Well, (laughs) let's, I'll put it this way in in the most charitable sense, you know, impurities always enter the mix. Um, it's impossible to, a script is a very pristine thing and it is not accountable to reality. Reality, uh, is the sort of the bugaboo of all production. You have this wonderful plan and then you get there on the day and it's raining or an actor is kind of just grumpy or um, the location is, we lost location, we have to just shoot it in a different spot or somebody just can't remember their lines that day or the prop is missing. You never know what it is, but or we didn't have the money. You know, There's a million things that happen on a day and you get what you get. So scripts to me are kind of, it always, it always goes sort of downhill, I think, just necessarily. But then there are those wonderful moments where it goes uphill, where it actually improves because a director brings something wonderful to it and actors bring something wonderful to it and the crew brings something wonderful to it and it actually blossoms. Those are the moments that I live for. And so for as many things as I've been blamed for that weren't my fault, I think I've probably been also praise for things that weren't my fault. <laughs> um, no, I don't think of myself as, as kind of accountable to writing anything more than what I can do. All I say is that I'm trying to get better. I, I People may say, well, you guys do this podcast, therefore you're screenwriting gurus. And I say, well, it's the opposite, actually. We do the screenwriting podcast because we love what we do and we love other writers and we want to share what we've learned along the way. But the only way to share what you've learned is to share it through humility in the sense that you are still learning. We're not done. If we were done, then we wouldn't need to keep doing this podcast. We're, I mean, I'm just speaking for John. I'm sure he agrees. We are constantly trying to improve ourselves and get better. And we're the opposite, frankly, of what people like Robert McKee present, which is some sort of completed prescription right. of how to create art. We're that is not we don't believe in that one bit. And that's honestly those why those guys don't do it because they don't get it. That's that's nuts. You know, there is form. There is function. That's really important. But there's also this magic that happens inside of things that grows with you through experience and age and time. Um, I think that. You know, I wouldn't have been able to write Chernobyl if I hadn't had 20 years behind me of learning some hard lessons along the way as a writer. Um, I'm very proud of it, and I think it's the best thing I've ever written. But 
I don't think it's the end of my growth in any way, shape, or form. Can you say a couple perfect scripts that you've read? In terms of a script that I read where I just went, oh, this is wonderful as a script, um, Jerry Maguire, I remember, made a huge impression on me. Uh, Cameron Crowe's script for Jerry Maguire I thought was just gorgeous, um, pretty much flawless. And Why? Um, so typically in, in a general Hollywood narrative, somebody has a problem in the beginning of a story and then something happens to them and they're forced to go on some sort of journey and then they address their problem, they get better, they fix it, and the end is happy. And in Jerry Maguire, Cameron Crowe turned that sort of on its head and had a character begin by looking around him and his life and in a moment of pure clarity – he was able to jump to the end of his own movie and write a manifesto about how one should be and how one should live. Right. And then he's immediately punished for it and reverts back instantly to who he was in a fearful attempt to try and get back to who he was. And through that process, finally and eventually becomes the man that he described in the beginning of the movie. And I thought that that was just a brilliant way of disassembling and then reassembling a very traditional narrative. I love that. And then all throughout, just the way other characters would work their way in. Um, sorry about the siren here. It's I live down the street from a firehouse. Um, very LA. <laughs> yeah, it's very LA. But um, the way other characters entered his story and forced him to reflect upon who he really was and what he really thought about things and how he related to other human beings. Everybody around him is sort of telling him to be a certain way. And then in his evolution, he changes the people around him as well. I just, I just thought that script did it all. It was funny, and it was heartwarming, and it was romantic, and it was thought-provoking. So as a screenplay, I think that one is is. And what one about of, as a produced movie? amazing. Yeah, okay, good. good. <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah, because yeah, no, I did I too. Movie. I was thinking if there was any. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. And, and, and you know, there's a continuity there because Cameron Crowe also directed right, it. Right, right. But honestly, as I, I'd rather read the script because, again, there's just a purity to it that I love. Um, and there are a lot of movies where I watch them and I think, okay, extracting the screenplay from this, I think it's brilliant. But that's when I remember reading the script and just thinking, Ooh, boy, I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to write something like this. <laughs> this is really, really good. We talked about comedy being such a difficult, you know, what about something else you've written several of, and that's sequels. Is there a trick? Mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wish there were a trick. It's extremely hard to do. And comedy sequels are the hardest because comedy generally relies on surprise. I mean, that's what a joke is. If you think about telling a joke, you know, to your friends, the punchline is a surprise and people are, it's almost like a magic trick, right? People are trying to guess what the ending of the joke will be. And then you surprise them with the punchline and comedy sequels have been robbed of a certain amount of surprise. Uh, and the seen, strange thing is people want the surprise, but they also want a bit of the same, right? That's right. And, and, and that's the difficult part, you know, same, but different. I, I remember when I came on to work on hangover part two with Todd Phillips, you know, he would say, this is kind of like the way he was looking at it. It's, it's a bit like a James Bond sort of thing, you know, James Bond movies 
have a kind of formula they do because people find it fun and comforting. They like James Bond. They like a Bond movie to start with some sort of mini adventure that ends with a Bondian success and a big, you know, wow. Then the credit sequence, which has silhouetted women and so forth. And then (laughs) a mission is assigned. There's a villain. He meets up with Q. He gets some cool gadgets. There's action. He has a martini. He has a martini. He falls in love. And uh, no one ever says, oh, this Bond movie did the same thing the other Bond movies do. That's what they want. Um, And so he took a sort of serialized approach to The Hangover Part 2. And we got absolutely brutalized by critics for, it's the same movie. Um, When obviously it was very intentional, the audience um, (laughs) showed up in droves and appreciated it. And, you know, we also, you know, with comedies, we always show them to an audience before – you know, a test audience. We want to know, like, what what's going on? Is this funny? Do people like this? And so I I don't need critics to tell me if the movie I've done works for an audience or not. I know. By the time the movie's coming out, I know if it does or not. And our audiences absolutely adored that movie. They loved it. Um, and I think, you know, when we came around to the, to the third Hangover movie, we sort of thought, well, if we do the same thing again, they're going to really go crazy. So maybe we should just do something completely different or try and do something completely different just to show that we can. And I wonder if that was a mistake. I mean, I love Hangover. I actually like Hangover 3 the most of the two of them. I like the Hangover the, Hangover the best. You know, that's the original. Um, but but I really, I love Hangover Part 3. But, you know, again, people were sort of like, like nah, you know, when we showed it to audiences, we're like, we like it. We're laughing. It's good. But not kind of, kind of wish it was just like, you know, the hangover two and the <laughs> hangover one, you know, like we would like that again. Um, it, it's really hard to do comedy sequels um, and and it takes a lot out of you. And ultimately, really, it's kind of a thankless task. If it works, people just sort of say, well, you know, you built on the first one. And if it doesn't, people say oh, cash grab, you know. Nothing's a. I wish I could explain this to critics when they there are two things critics say that are just flat out wrong, factually wrong, and they say it all the time. One is the word lazy. Well, lazy filmmaking, lazy. Nobody's lazy on a movie. It's the least lazy thing you can do <laughs> is write a movie and make a movie. It's the minimum length of time on a shooting day is twelve hours. There's no lazy to be had. Everybody is absolutely panicked when things aren't working and trying super duper hard to fix them. Um. And the other thing is cash grab. There's no, you don't, we have options. You know, if you're a, at a certain level, maybe a studio. Yeah, sure. That's all their businesses. Everything they do is a cash grab. That's the point of their business. But for the people making the work, the actors and the writers and directors, the only way to do it is to care about it. Mm-hmm. Even if it sounds silly to say, oh, you know, I cared about making scary movie for I did. That's the only way we were able to make Scary Movie 4, you know? Yeah. Um, um, talking about, about critics since you went, that's one of my favorite episodes of Script Notes. Well, you talked about it before, but there's one specific one where you talk about sort of how critics and how critique influences you or doesn't. Um, how do you feel, for those who haven't heard it, about film criticism in general as a screenwriter? Um, I think that there's film criticism and then there's the review industry Mm -hmm. and film criticism fascinates me. So I think of proper film criticism as 
intelligent people who appreciate movies, who want to like movies, and who um, have really absorbed the history of movies, taking a look at individual films, putting them in their context, and talking about why they love them. I am only interested, and I and I love when film critics talk about something they love, because sometimes it helps me either explain, either understand why I love a movie as well, or it introduces me to something I wasn't aware of, or it makes me reevaluate something that perhaps I glossed over a little too quickly. That part is amazing. The film review business is just garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a, a, a huddle of people that. Uh, are moving, uh, they, they go on these junkets, right? So they just are moving from theater to theater over the course of some sad weeks, watching every single movie they're forced to watch in order to review. These are not movies that they necessarily would ever go to on their own. They're watching too many of them. Um, my friend, Alec Berg, who, um, is the terrific writer, um, and Swedish, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, Seinfeld so and Alec Barry, Berg, right? <laughs> Exactly, and Barry and Silicon Valley and mm, career enthusiasm. Incredible. His his analogy was always that if your job was to be a hamburger critic, and you had to eat a hamburger every single day, somewhere in year two, the hamburger you would be craving the most is the hamburger that is not at all a hamburger <laughs> because you're, you know, you're not supposed to consume a movie a day, or a, or even two or three movies a week you're supposed to basically see you know like if you see a movie every two weeks or a movie a month that's how most people see them and also when they see them they're seeing them because they want to they're choosing to see it it's it's a it's an odd thing to say all right my job is to be a food reviewer someone bring me food okay here's a food well i don't i don't wouldn't normally eat this food (laughs) so it's just it's such a strange thing and even worse, the reviewers now don't even matter. There's no, I guess, influential reviewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only influential review now is a combined slurry of all the reviews that are shoved into a percentage number that is absurd. Um, You're talking about Rotten Tomatoes type of right. Thing, it's right? just a, it's a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and people talk about these things as if they matter. But does it get to you? I mean, honestly. Well. It has in the past. Oh, yeah, of course it, it has in the past. But oh, for sure. Um, but I don't. I after Identity Thief, I made a decision to not think or, or worry about that uh, since, and I don't. Um, I don't think or worry about any of it, and and I won't. You know, I don't need to read reviews. I think that that was all part of a certain kind of. Uh, self-loathing you know you start to seek out the negative Mm -hmm. to confirm the negative inside of you and i think i've gotten rid of that or at least i'm i'm making an effort to get rid of it so i I don't want to i don't want to do anything that feels sort of self-undermining and in the end there's really no relevance you know to any of that stuff and the movie exists as it exists forever right and and in the end the people who didn't like it disappear and what's left are the people that do and they love it you know, the people that love it persist in loving it. And that's wonderful. Another thing that seems like such a high pressure part of your job is is you've written this script that you're really you know proud of. And then 
you get into collaborations that maybe aren't working for you. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. right. I read that your collaboration with the Weinsteins, for example, was quite <laughs> difficult. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. It seems difficult for a lot of people at this point, uh, but what was your experience? Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I hesitate only because, you know, it's it's a weird thing. It's as if, you know, I'm uh, – what was it? Um, John Wayne Gacy was an American serial killer who also would pose as a clown at parties. Like that was a side gig with oh. being paid to be a clown at parties. And I feel a little bit like – Someone whose experience with John Wayne Gacy was he just was not great at being a clown at my party. <laughs> but all, <laughs> oh, God, you know, like, yeah, sort of like the wine, like Harvey raped people. So, you know, the fact that I had a tough time writing movies for that company doesn't really seem like it's, I understand. You know what I mean? I mean, look, they it was very difficult. Um, mostly I worked with Bob, I would say 98% of my dealings with their company first as Miramax and and Dimension and then as the Weinstein company was with Bob. And so I never, I mean, you know, I had probably four or five conversations with Harvey over the course of seven or eight years. And I should say, and I always do that. I had no idea um, about what was going on. Um, I, I knew that from experience that both of them could be very abusive verbally. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly Bob was verbally abusive to me and it was hard. And it it was bad. It got really, really bad. Which and, movies were these? Well, so Scary Movie 3 and Scary Movie 4 and Superhero. The, the parody movies, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um, were all written and produced under duress. Great duress. Oh, wow. From Bob. And, uh, and they were hard enough to begin with. Um, and by the time we got to the last one, um, it got really bad. And... It was, you know, it definitely messed me up. And and so, again, I have to say all this comes with the asterisk. And yet that company, at least Harvey, was certainly capable of doing far, far worse and did far, far worse to other people. So I can't – I'm not – I can't really complain. It would, It's unseemly to complain um, about my experience, I think. I'm just – it's terrifying. Um, that whole thing is terrifying because I didn't know. And that, that actually is very disturbing to think about. You know, people, when they discover serial killers, the, the classic thing that the person that's interviewed, the neighbor, you know, I did, he seemed like a you know perfectly normal guy. That's what the neighbor always says. And you think, really? Jeffrey Dahmer seemed like a perfectly normal guy, even though he was eating people? And then, you know, I knew that, you know, certainly Harvey was not a perfectly normal guy, but I did not see, I it just didn't register that that was a thing mm-hmm. that could be going on. And it's just terrible. I just, my heart goes out to everybody that ever worked for those guys, honestly, mm-hmm. anyone, but in particular, um, God, you know, the women, uh, it's just, yeah, it's heartbreaking. No, I, I and I appreciate you saying that that um, that of course it was it's not comparable to what you were through. But but when when you have been through something like that, what does how do you ensure? What do you learn going into your next collaborations, especially if you're a screenwriter who's doesn't have the power to choose 
who you're working yeah. with and not? Well, um, I think the first thing you have to do is ask, why did that situation go on as long as it did? If you end up in a bad situation once, well, lesson learned. Mm-hmm. But if you do two or three movies, um, then you are a bit of the kind of, you know, uh, the abuse that comes back, right? For more abuse. And it's not uncommon. It's a very common thing. The question to ask is why? You know, what what inside of me is making me come back? And how do I address that? Well, maybe you can't get another job. I mean, this is a tough business, well, right? Well, it, it is. It, it, sure. But I think the truth is you can get another job. You just, the business has kind of convinced you you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what they do. And you will re- end up repeating the pattern, I think, unless you take a really long look. And I did. You know, around 2008, 2009, I took a very, very long look at who I was and what I was doing and why I was doing it and what I wanted to do. And 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 I made changes. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't easy, um, but it was necessary. And, you know, my feeling is anybody that tells you I'm the only person that will love you, if you leave me, you'll have nobody, that person's a liar. It's just simple. It's just a fact. They're a liar. <laughs> They're manipulating you. And a lot of what goes on in Hollywood, I think, particularly in connection with feature film screenwriters, is Generally speaking, there is an effort to convince screenwriters that they are less important than they are, um, less essential than they are, that they have less authority than they actually do. Because if they told us how much we actually mattered, um, you know, <laughs> then we would be in charge of stuff. Right. Um, and and in television, it's just so bizarre. I, well, there you do have the showrunner culture, though, more, right? Right. But I guess I know why, but also it just kind of blows my mind. Like, how do they not see in features that it just makes for better movies? You know, when you have writers that matter and you empower writers in movies and you don't allow directors to just casually just upturn things and do whatever they want or let producers flip things over and do whatever they want – but you have the person who's writing the story matters and there's an authority that goes along with that. How can they not see that that's, that's leading to much better work on television? And I can say now having been involved in television for the first time. So in this case, this is the first time in my career that I am technically the boss. Mm-hmm. And I, the best part of it is I feel like, Oh, I'm finally just being treated the way I should have been treated <laughs> all along. I'm not, ordering anyone around you know johan and i have this beautiful relationship we trust each other and we care about each other because neither one of us has this need to beat the other one down in movies the director can just go i don't even want you on set i don't want you anywhere near me and you can never come to the editing room and i'm changing your script whether you like it or not and you know what Uh, go away that's how imperious it is that's crazy it's just insane the Auteur theory is just nonsense. I mean, it's just a theory that a guy said. Andrew Saris just said it. What does he know? Literally, what does he know and what is he even talking about? And how how can you explain 
the beauty of some of these wonderful television shows. How can you explain how these shows that do not function on the auteur theory are just so incredible and beautiful to watch and experience? No, it's garbage. It's absolute garbage. And I think, uh, for, honestly, directors on some level must know it's garbage and are just clinging to it because they're afraid i don't i I have no other but it's embarrassing honestly i think ultimately it embarrasses them Mm -hmm. when i see in the in the in the united states i see a movie and the opening credits say a film by you know joe schmo and i just think who are you what is this a film by (laughs) a film by no it i can tell you who this film was by everybody (laughs) it's like all the people helped make it but at the very minimum, how do you say a film by when you didn't come up with the story, you didn't come up with the scenes, you didn't come up with the characters, you didn't come up with the words they say, you didn't come up with the beginning, middle, or end, you didn't describe the clothes they were wearing. How is it your film? I just, I'm fascinated by this. When you needed a document to tell you where to go, what to shoot, what they say, how to cast, it's, it is so absurd. How many scripts do you have on the go at once? One. Oh, really? Uh, I mean, I will. Yeah, I, I, I don't like working on two things at once. I don't. I think I just end up diminishing both things. I will take breaks on things. So if I'm working on something and then I go, okay, we're going to revisit this and do a second draft in between. Let me do two weeks helping this person with this movie. Um, yeah, because we, I mean, my husband has a lot, has to have several things because, you know, there's in different stages of production. We, we often talk about that old Philip Roth, the road to hell is paved with work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, true. It's true. So it's interesting to hear that you only had one, but, but um, well, I, I will sometimes work on two things at once. If one thing is in a much different stage than another. Right. So if I'm writing a screenplay, I can take a week to just think about a story for something else. Um, but generally I like to throw myself into what I'm doing and give it full attention. I think I can't say for sure, but I think that one of the reasons that I, um, work or get work offered to me is that I, is that I give every job my full attention. But when you, now when you're looking for work, it's a different yeah, story. When you're starting you, out, right? You have you're to forced spec to. scripts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, I guess the benefit there was that I was young and, I always say this to new screenwriters. I'm like, listen, the, here's the advantage you guys have. Um, you don't have kids. You're not old. You're not tired. I get tired a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have children. And um, so you have more energy than I do. And you should be able to work all day long and all night long. And and you're more relevant and current and vibrant. All these things. So those are your those are the things that are going for you. And I try and encourage, you know, new writers to just hit the gas as hard as they can. Right. I have a question um, that happens once in a while. There was news this week that um, a movie that you've written, a version of the Chris Pratt Cowboy Ninja Viking movie, um, is on again and getting new writers. um, And that this script has been in different revisions for like eight years or something. So (laughs) standing on the sidelines looking like that, sometimes you feel like, ooh, that probably isn't a good sign. Is is that true or is it just the process that takes a long time? Sometimes it isn't a good sign. In this case, actually, um, 
my answer to this question relates to my answer to your prior question. They did ask me to to come back and and work on the script. Um, you know, there's a, a new director on, a wonderful director, Michelle McLaren, and the studio did ask me to come and work on it, but I couldn't because I was working on Chernobyl. And I like to do one thing at one time. And um, and so I just wasn't available. And that happens. Uh, in th- That's an interesting one. I, I wrote my version of Cowboy Ninja Viking some years ago. I think it was about, mm, I want to say about like three years ago, maybe four. And then it's sort of just nothing happened. It wasn't rewritten in that amount of time. But when you're dealing with actors like Chris Pratt, who are constantly working, who's making Guardians of the Galaxy movies and Jurassic Park movies and all these other things, it just scheduling becomes a huge factor. And um, so now that there's they've figured that part out, I just was not available to to keep working on it. So, But I have, you know, it's nice as I talk to the writers who are working on it and we had good discussions about it because – to me, that's great, like to be collegial and, and, you know, and, and Michelle and I have talked about it and, and it may be that when I become available, if they need things, I might be able to come back and help, or maybe they don't need it and they're in great shape and off they go. So sometimes these things are far more innocuous than people think. Has somebody approached you about writing the Ted Cruz roommate comedy? <laughs> everybody. Yeah. I mean, not in Hollywood, not in Hollywood, but everybody I meet, of you know, course. every normal person is like, you got to write a Ted Cruz movie. Why would I ever want to do that? Just for people who are listening, you were in during your Princeton years, you were roommate with Senator and one of the Republican presidential candidates, Ted Cruz. And um, you have not spoken flatteringly of him. <laughs> Uh, no, and and I always clarify, I was his freshman year roommate in college, which means they assigned him to me. There was just, you know, I didn't pick him. Right, that um, to be clear. I hated, yes, I hated Ted Cruz from essentially minute one. Um, and I have been talking about what a vile human being he is. Um, even before he was elected to the Senate, even before he won the primary um, in, in, in his senatorial race, uh, he's awful. And I think everybody now has gotten a good look at him. Even his fellow Republicans hate him. He is just an awful person. He's a failure of a senator um, and a failure of a person. And, uh, you know, my great hope is that uh, the people of Texas, they have a a senator who does nothing uh, for them whatsoever, um, except, I guess, take money from the NRA and laugh about it. Uh, I, I hope that they can see their way to just getting rid of him. Um, they don't, it doesn't, you don't have to become, you know, if you're a, a conservative person in Texas, you don't need to rip up your Republican Party membership card or even your NRA card and, and become uh, a liberal. But you do have to get rid of Ted Cruz because he's awful. And he's awful for, according to Republicans. And he's awful according to the facts. And he has accomplished nothing and will accomplish nothing. All he wants to do is run for president. He doesn't even know why he wants to president wants to be president. He's just sort of uh, he's he's someone who has a kind of pointless ambition. Well, um, um, your tweets about him caused a huge stir. I mean, there's news everywhere, and and everyone picked it up. But uh, you seriously would never write that movie about him. Well, no, because I would have to then have him in my head again for, you know, hours at a time. Plus, you know, when you write a movie or a tele anything, you know, you have to love your villain. 
because your villain's no good if you don't understand them. There's if a villain is too uncomplicated, too simple, we just have no interest in them. But couldn't you tell us? I mean, help us. Or the ones who are sort of on the strange people who are on the fence regarding Senator Ted Cruz. Maybe you could do a service. I can't help those people. There's <laughs> a, there's enough evidence at this point. Well, turning on to something else, finally, you are working now with a whole bunch of Swedes. Yuan Renk, yes. who was just on, on my show here, and, and Stellan, and, and a few others, I believe. Um, yep. Has anything about Swedes surprised you during this working <laughs> process? Um, I don't know if anything surprised me per se, um, but um, – and uh, just to mention also Jakob Ira is our, our – our DP and Mons Monson is our uh, second unit director, which on this show is an incredibly important and creative role because we have a lot of stuff that we're, I mean, because Mons is so great, we can kind of relieve some of the burden of Johan and actually accomplish all the things we need to accomplish. Um, and, and David Denchik also appears in the show. Oh, he's, he's another, fantastic. Oh, and Faris Faris appears in the mm-hmm. show. So I have been impressed in general with, um, just the, the the basic decency of um, all of our Swedish team members and their competence and their commitment. And, you know, as an atheist, I'm always amazed, you know, by people who say, well, if you don't believe in God, then what's to keep you from murdering people? I'm like, that's not how it works. And <laughs> I just want to say, like, you know what? Let's just go to Sweden and look around because there's also <laughs> there's a lot of atheists here and they're all incredibly decent people who are guided by a general sense of community. There's an actual sense of community and um, the thought that, you know, your fellow person is worth caring about and helping, which on a the set of a production is a wonderful thing. It was really important to me that whoever we bring on as a director, that that person be deeply decent that we didn't have somebody who would be screaming at people and and somebody that would be making people cry and somebody that would be a bully. I didn't want any of that. It just would be no good. You know, um, I, I like, you know, I've worked for the Weinsteins. I've had enough of it. (laughs) And also Swedish people are so beautiful. They're all beautiful. What is going on? It's so weird. It's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) I can't answer that. Um, so, so all of the Swedes have just been the most incredibly pleasant people. I can't even imagine them, you know, yelling or throwing a tantrum or, and again, I'm sure, you know, some, some bad Swedish it apples. It takes but, a uh, long time for that to happen, but when it does. <laughs> yeah, then it's volcanic, I assume. Um, when is Chernobyl out? It's going to be out in the, um, or in 2019. I don't know if I'm necessarily license to say exactly when it will be coming out so i'll just i'll say 2019 next year at some time okay well we can't wait to see it craig thank you so much for taking this much of your time to talk to me about your whole career and work it was really interesting thank you it was uh, a joy thanks so much Thank you so much to Craig Mason. You can continue to listen to Craig on the podcast Script Notes, and we're very much looking forward to Chernobyl, of course.
And thank you so much for listening. You can follow Pop Culture Confidential on Instagram and on Twitter at Pod Pop Culture. And make sure to listen next week only on Spotify. I'm Anne Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 